0: All right. We're back with another episode of Lions Guide Podcast, where we take on topics and performance and personal growth by exploring the success stories of our guests and the lessons they've learned. I interview other subject matter experts and also review books and other resources to help us all establish clarity, build courage, and lead. I'm your host, Dale Walls. I'm founder of Lions Guide. And on this episode, I've got Mr. Tommy Parker and Ms. Dara Rada, And uh, Tommy – Grew up in Montana before joining the Marine Corps as an infantry rifleman uh, after high school. And Tommy then deployed to Afghanistan with the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment. And while on foot patrol, he stepped on an improvised explosive device, IED, and resulting in the amputation of his right leg uh, above the knee, his left leg at the hip, and all of the fingers on his hand and save his thumb. He returned to Montana but soon lost his purpose in life and replaced it with drugs. This led him down in a long, dark, road of substance abuse for the better part of a decade. Tommy ran into his childhood friend, now fiance, and through love and acceptance, she helped reignite purpose within him. Since finding Dara in getting sober, he's gone on to become an adaptive athlete, competing in half marathons, marathons, and in May, will be running an Ironman triathlon. So on this episode, I talk with Tommy and Dara about how their story came to be from you know, life in a small town, Montana, to Tommy being wounded in combat and overcoming his drug addiction and ultimately finding true love with one another. So if you like the sound of that before uh, we get started, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any of our other great guests and content in. This podcast is sponsored by Lions Guide, so if you've been tuning in, getting value from the show, then do yourself a favor and go out to lionsguide.com and join our member community called The Pride. For no cost to you, it's free. You get access to all kinds of free exclusive content to include yet to be released episodes of the podcast, reading lists, live virtual training events. Uh, private online groups to engage with other growth-minded members and much more so again joining the pride is free and i'm putting it all together to help you break out of your rut and or break through to the best version of yourself by establishing clarity building your courage and being the true leader of your life so check it out now go to lionsguide.com and join today so with that said let's start the show On today's podcast, we have Tommy Parker and Dara Rada. I did. No, I did get it thanks. <laughs> I told her before the show I was going to call her Ruda by accident, but I got it right again. So, uh, hey, Tommy is a Marine veteran and a keynote speaker at Mission Six Zero, and Dara, his fiance, is a fund development manager at Warrior Rising. And we're here because you know, really, Tommy, I saw you on LinkedIn, and I was like, man, this, this dude's got a story to tell. And I reached out, and you're, uh, you know graceful enough to kind of reach back and say yeah man let's do it so we linked up and and we're here and so uh i'll turn to you guys for a minute tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, what do you do well
1: thank you dale um as you said my name is tommy parker i was in the marine corps uh i got wounded in the marine corps and then um made some poor choices which we'll get into later in the in the podcast um and then found this incredible woman which uh, rebuilt me so awesome. what do you do <laughs>
2: um boy that's a hard act to follow besides loving this guy i'm the fund development manager at warrior rising and we help entrepreneurs or as we call them entrepreneurs, create their own businesses and really find purpose when they get back um into civilian life
0: yeah and i think that's that's really powerful and needed stuff because you know i talk to people about this all the time right like you know marine veteran myself like you kind of have it made from the regard like you don't have to think about much like they're going to tell you what to wear, where to be, where to live, how to talk, how to like, like what your job is. Like they, they tell you everything. And then when you get out, it's like you got And Certainly, there's different things to help you transition out or whatever. But but we I find ourselves like looking for a mission like right away. I see that with with vets often, and I'm sure. So um, so that that's awesome. And I guess, you know, what's a l- little bit, Tommy, about uh, Mission Six Zero?
1: Um, mission six, zero is a leadership development company, uh, to steal a word from another one of our employees. Uh, we forge commanders in the civilian section. And so we take, uh, guys that were in the, um, the military, uh, and not just guys that were in the military. We have seals on our, on our team. We have green berets, all sorts of things. So these top tier performers, and then we took scientists and paired them up with them, um, and pulled out, uh, the leadership tricks and tips that they use to get through their, their horrible uh, deployments or uh, their deployments to austere environments. Um, And we make them digestible. So, so other people can understand them and implement them in their lives. Yeah. That's
0: awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about your background. Like where'd you grow up? What was that like? Where are you from? Well, Dara
1: and I both actually grew up together. Uh, I was born in Wailuku, Hawaii, and then my family decided to come to the middle of nowhere, Montana, or back here, uh, which is actually where my mom's side of the family is from, so it made sense, but I'm still disappointed about it, because if you guys could see outside, there's snow, and there's not snow in Hawaii right now, um, but uh, came back here, grew up in the middle of nowhere. There's more cows than people. Um, there's, I think there's 5,000 people in the, the entire population of our town. And that could be the rural communities as well. And they might've included chipmunks in there. I don't know where, where they got the population (laughs) count, but, um, yeah, we grew up little tiny, small town living. Um, everybody knew everybody. Uh, everybody called you friend. I don't know. I had to quote this song, but, uh, um, her, uh, Dara and I were actually really good friends, um, in elementary school, uh, and middle school. And then in high school, uh,
2: I dated his best friend. <laughs> I did throughout high school.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I wasn't good enough at that point in time, I guess.
2: He just needed to <laughs> age a little bit, like, in line. That's all. He had a little more aging to do.
1: <laughs> but, yeah, and then um, if they end up uh, – so, through high school, Darn and I actually wrestled together. Like, we weren't in the same weight class. I'm a lot bigger than her. <laughs> but we wrestled on the same team and stuff. Uh, sports and, and being outdoors is a big part of our, our community around here. Um, and actually it was an even bigger part of Dara's life than mine, but, uh,
2: it is gorgeous here. We live right by Flathead Lake and we have the Mission Mountains. So it's a great place to come visit in Montana.
0: Now, what's now, as far as like outdoor activities out there, is it like a little bit, of everything like horseback riding, hiking, you know, the works or is there anything spe- special that like you find tourists come there to do most or anything like that?
2: the lake.
1: Uh, tourists come here for the lake. Uh, we said that our population is 5,000, except during, between like June through the beginning of August because then our population's like 20,000. Like, there's so many people here. We only have two stoplights in our town. There are two stoplights total. Uh, so our infrastructure isn't designed to have bumper-to-bumper traffic and uh, it's horrible
0: in the summertime, but
1: they may now need to guys, their- like here
0: are you guys like in town limits or like out, out of town?
1: Uh, we're out of town. We're out of city limits. I can see city limits from my house, but we're out of, out of city limits.
0: Oh, right on. Yeah. So growing up, like, you know, uh, so you moved from Hawaii, um, with your mom. Now, did you have a father, father in your life or a father figure? Um,
1: until, until I was like six, uh, I had a father figure in my life, I guess. And then, uh, we got, I got in a car crash. I was in the car with him and my mom yelled at him and chased him away. And I didn't see him again until I was 19. Um, she got remarried though, to a guy that wasn't capable of being a dad at the time, but he Mm. tried and yeah. And so, uh, actually I'm glad you brought that up because all of that established interesting fundamentals in my childhood that, um, I didn't believe that love was real. I Mm. thought that it was just a word. Uh, and that's important for later in the story because i didn't understand that it was tangible that it was something you could feel i thought it was just a word that people said to each other to (laughs) when they were actually hurting them to try to make them feel better about hurting them as honestly the most times i heard it Um, oh wow and and i'm not trying to say i grew up in a in a horrible home i just it was archaic and confused like i'm not I, i didn't grow up i could have been much worse but It's okay, because if I wouldn't have grown up the way that I did, um, I wouldn't have survived my time in the military.
0: Right. Yeah, which is typical, right? Like, it's kind of like its own crucible sometimes, like how we grew up. Um, You know, and and certainly something like the Marine Corps, especially when you get to boot camp. I know you saw it. So, so you went to San Diego then, eh?
1: Yes, I'm from... I am lucky enough that I'm from the West Coast area. I'm west uh, of the Mississippi, so I went to San Diego. You see must how this is how Marines say
0: that, right? I was lucky enough to be on the west side of the Mississippi, right? Yeah, we we don't say that over here on the eastern side of the Mississippi. Well,
1: well that's you must <laughs> went to Paris Island and had to <laughs> yeah. deal. I mean, you guys didn't have any mountains or anything, but you had sand fleas and stuff, you know? Oh, so yeah
0: oh yeah definitely <laughs> but you know right i mean what did you see in boot camp like i, I guess you jumping around a little bit like you know as far as the dynamic of like what you came from and your how it prepared you for you know getting started in the marine corps versus like others and so on
1: i grew up in a house where uh conversations were never held at conversational tones it was instantly uh zero to a hundred like screaming constantly And so boot camp, that portion of it was, was a cakewalk to me. Like if you talk to anybody that was a Marine that went through boot camp, like they will tell you that if, if one uh, recruit starts to break or falter in any way that all of a sudden the rest of the drill instructors smell blood and they will circle them and, and only one will be saying words, but the rest are like, "Ah, ah, just yelling sounds in your ears. Um, and that always like i laughed at that because i'd been yelled at growing up i played sports and everything else like and and so being yelled at by by other grown men didn't bother me at all it, it was it was easy like i i was i was disappointed i actually thought boot camp would be harder to be if we're being
0: honest is that right yeah and yeah. how big a platoon platoon did you guys run through and when 90? when was this when did you go to when did you go to boot camp oh nine i joined the uh I graduated high school
1: in 2008, um, and then I joined uh, boot camp February 23rd of 2009. It was my enlistment date.
0: Right, right. So about 90 people to start your platoon? Yeah. And what did you end up with?
1: uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. We didn't lose a whole lot. I went through boot camp right when swine flu went through the U.S., actually. And so it was it was really weird because if you got sick in boot camp you went to like a quarantine platoon and like there was a possibility that they might bring you back like it was it was very interesting but uh we graduated with most of our kids I think at least 2 thirds of them from our from that platoon
0: Yeah I think that's about what we were too like I think we started with like 96 and ended with 67 or something something like that Yeah so it it,
1: kind of- it's it's interesting I uh a guy that was in my platoon in boot camp um got out of like ended up being pulled to a different platoon and then I ran into him after I got injured I ran into him in the wounded warrior battalion and um he finally made it through it took him so for those of you that don't know Marine Corps boot camp is three and a half months okay and it took this gentleman like 6 months to make it through boot camp um and then he got hurt in his A school and got out and I was just like I don't you never actually got an opportunity to really be in the Marine Corps like you which I'm not downplaying his service. I just, I, I felt bad for him because I, I enjoyed my time in service.
0: Yeah, you you learn a lot. And so you were, were you straight out of uh, high school or when did you end up in? More or less, it, about a year. I mean, it, I graduated in May of
1: 2008 and joined February of 2009. Like it wasn't okay. even a full year.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So Dara, how about you? What was, uh, what was growing up around small town Montana like for you?
2: Uh, well, I loved it because my grandparents lived close to us and are very adventurous. My grandpa was a smoke jumper and then a lead pudding pilot for the Forest Service.
1: He has ice water in his veins. Like I've met some dudes that <laughs> He's are really good at, tough. <laughs> are good at gun foo. And her grandpa makes me feel like a sissy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, so I spent a lot of my childhood like back in the mountains in the back country, you know, packing in on horses to hunt or flying in to clean up like a really rural backcountry airstrip, you know. Um, so I had a great childhood. It was it was really, really lovely. Yeah, and then I actually left school a year early. I decided that um, I was done being in Ronan in high school, and I bought a plane ticket to Germany, and I lived over there as an au pair, and I finished my uh, high school online. So that was good. I was I traveled a lot. I did a lot of fun things. And then I came back here to go to school, um, to go to college. And I met somebody and got married and adopted his four kids at the age of 18.
0: Oh, wow. So
1: hold on. I have, to, I have to throw this in there. Not only is Dara the most intelligent woman I've ever met in my entire life, but she is the kindest woman I've ever met in my entire life. Yeah, I Besides would say. From- my my two cents. She she left high school early not because uh, she wasn't capable of doing it, but because she was bored of it. Because she was too smart to be
0: there. Like I want to throw that out there for everybody listening. Like
2: I was just ready for adventures <laughs> <was> a little.
0: <laughs> but yeah, I was going to ask. Was I mean? So I guess like what was that? Um. So did you did you end up like was that a, is did you still end up with your high school diploma or was it a GED program That's that you actually- yeah.
2: Yeah, through Brigham Young University. At the time, they had just released like a correspondence form of finishing high school. Um, so it, it wasn't through the mail. Luckily, it was online. Um, and I could do it at my own pace, which was really nice because of the time zone situation. Um, so it worked out really slick. I, you know, I even made like a pie chart for my parents and explained that it would be the same amount to pay for my school as they would have given me for lunch money my senior year, you know. <laughs>
1: All of this is 17. That's how smart
0: she is. All of yeah, this is so, 17. So what are your parents saying? Like what how <laughs> what's going on in these conversations? Like are you I mean okay, yeah. Fill me in. Like what 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 do you do? You come home and say, "Mom, dad, I'm done with school and I'm moving to Germany and here's well, my business plan." Like, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah, pretty much, except I was um I was str- a little strategic about it. Like I had just approached my mom at home with my paperwork I had compiled and, you know, presented it to her. And she was sad, but could tell, like, I had my mind made up. Um, and then my dad, I waited until he was in his happiest place in the world. He, um, he had been in an accident and he had lost all of the toes on his foot. Hmm. And with his uh, compensation he got from that, he bought a boat for the lake we were talking about called Toe Much Fun. Mm. So, so we're sitting on so much fun, and I had been, I had learned how to mix his favorite toddy, and I had been giving him more and more toddies, and then you know finally asked him, and he said yes that night, and I held him to it.
1: Wow. Dangerously
0: intelligent, dangerously intelligent. It worked, him. jeez. So why, um, so why Germany? Like, what I mean, what was that all about?
2: Well, so we had um, foreign exchange students at our high school our junior year. And I had met people um, from Germany and Spain and Brazil and just all sorts of places. And it had made me realize how much of a fishbowl I lived in at the time. Like I had traveled a little bit, but, but not much, not, not compared to what I wanted to see. And um, most of the exchange students that I had gotten to be friends with lived in Germany. And so um, I chose Germany, and I was able to see three of them while I was there. So that was really cool. So I lived in Germany and France and then visited the UAE while I was over there.
0: <laughs> 17. <sighs> no, so, so uh, I did
2: turn 18 while I was
1: there. <laughs> I understand that, but will you please tell uh, Dale as well as everybody else that's gonna hear this, when you realize that it might not be a good idea to go to the UAE so, alone?
2: Hmm. Yeah, not till I was on the plane actually. And I looked around um, and it's interesting because, and, and I actually, Tommy's like given had panels at different universities and stuff about nine 11 and how it's affected different people. Um, but I I didn't even really think about it until I was sitting on the plane and I look around and I'm the only woman on the plane and I'm the only one not wearing any kind of head wrap or, you know, and it just, then was like bring all these stereotypical images to my mind of like footage I had seen after 9-11. And so I got super nervous, but I still went. And actually the people there um, at the time, it was 2007, they were just really starting to build up Dubai, um, which is where I spent part of my time. Hmm. And everyone was very, very nice and welcoming, but it was it was definitely fascinating to see the different cultural things that happened there.
0: So so what brought you back home? Like, how, So were you gone for just a year or longer? Yep. And what brought you back?
2: I was gone for a year and then I came back to, I wanted to be a travel journalist. And so I got accepted to the University of Montana. Um, I had a grandmother here who was, let's see, in her 80s. And I was concerned I wouldn't get to spend much time with her. Um, she died a month before her 100th birthday. So I had plenty of time, but I didn't know that at the time. She
1: died
0: last year.
2: Yep. So, so I came home to go to college.
0: Right on, man. You guys and then
1: fell in love with some kids and never went to college.
2: Well, I did go to college, but not the tradition. You know, I had been set to go to the University of Montana and then like go to Chile for a couple years um, to finish my studies over there, and instead, um, I finished a lot of my college online and then tested you know at the physical universities because all of a sudden i had four kids and uh three of them had to be in daycare and it was the you know it's so expensive when you're trying to make it work like that but i made it work
0: yeah daycare is expensive big time you know there it's like Mm -hmm. another mortgage payment per kid it seems like but so they're supposed to be assets not liabilities (laughs) 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 oh man yeah the uh so so tommy what made you join the marine corps
1: um i wish i had a cool uh thing to say here like i hear other people and they're like patriotism and all that like it wasn't like that for me um i had a best friend in high school uh not the one she dated a different one um and his name was frank swan and uh after high school um he joined the marine corps And I had tried to talk to a Marine Corps recruiter while I was in high school. It was actually during wrestling season. Um, I went and met with him. And uh, he's like, I need you to weigh 203 pounds. How much do you weigh? I was like, I don't know, like 215. Um, And he's like, oh, I can't talk to you then. And I was like, what? Why? He's like, not until you weigh under this weight. I was like, wrestling practice starts today. Like (laughs) After that, I'll probably be under the weight. If you want (laughs) to wait and talk to me, like whatever makes you happy. I don't know what plans you have this afternoon, but... Um, and he didn't want to hear anything I had to say. And, and so it, it put a bad taste in my mouth. So I, I said, you know, to hell with the, the military. Um, and, uh, I was going to work manual labor the rest of my life because sadly I'd found out that, uh, I was a big kid and I, uh, to put it bluntly out a God complex, I thought that I was better at athletics than I was. I was okay, but I wasn't anything special, but academically I didn't take school serious. Um. And so when I sent footage and stuff to colleges to try to go, uh, they're like, yeah, we can't give you any scholarships. And, uh, unfortunately I, I come from a family that doesn't have a whole lot of extra money just sitting around to pay for me to go to college. So I was going to work manual labor. I started working for an uncle, uh, training to be an arborist. Uh, he has a tree cutting business. Um, he was in a Marine during the Vietnam era. He actually graduated boot camp the day the camp David peace accords were signed.
2: Um,
1: but uh, and so I was working for him. And uh, then Frank asked me, he's like, dude, I'm home on recruiter's assistance. We talked to the recruiter. So I agreed to just to, you know, give him to help a bro. And uh, and I sat down and I talked to probably the single handed, uh, the most cool recruiter that exists in the Marine Corps. Uh, he's another rural Montana boy. And uh, I told him I want to be in the infantry. and He's like, "Nope, there's no spots available. I said, like, OK, bye he's like wait a second wait a second we can maybe we can maybe find a spot and i was like okay like uh, and so we ended up finding a spot and i asked him i was like what was what's the infantry going to be like because he was a machine gunner uh, and he said you're gonna hate it he's like you're gonna walk uh past the motor pool where they have trucks uh he's like you'll probably sleep outside on the ground possibly in the rain where you can see your barracks room He's like, you, they will make you carry things that you don't need to. And they will play silly games with you that they don't need to. He's like, however, when you get to do your job, when you get to pull the trigger, when you get to do infantry stuff, you feel like an action hero. And those moments make up for all the other times. And I have to tell all of you, like he was hundred percent true. There were so many stupid times in the Marine Corps that I absolutely hated, but all the other times made, made up for it. And, uh, I got to be so close with those guys and love those guys more than, than, than blood family members that I have. Um, and I'm grateful for my time in service. And I guess what we're talking about it from there, I went to 3rd Battalion 5th Marine Regiment, is it a unit I was attached to, or I was um, in in the Marine Corps. And I deployed with them to Sangin, Afghanistan, um, September 28th of 2010. And uh, well, in Afghanistan... We were on, we were doing counterinsurgency. Actually, I want to back up because Dara and I crossed paths before I went to Afghanistan. Um, and I, this is interesting because this interaction didn't stand out in my mind, but it did in hers. And so I was home on pre-deployment leave and you were at your oldest son's uh, baseball game. Yep.
2: Which my oldest, my oldest adopted son is about the same age as his little, my little brother. brother. So there's a good age difference between all of
0: us now how close were you guys in school like before you left how close were you guys dara and i dara and i are a month apart like were you guys like best friends in high school like
1: were you close or like Like, no around this time uh so after dara dated ben in high school um i have this rule that if you date my friend you're a dude and so dara and i quit being friends kind of Um, And not not for any other reason than we just drifted apart because our lives went in different directions.
2: Yeah. So like while we weren't like really bro-ish visiting with each other all the time, though, we were still around each other all the time because we had classes together. And then that same friend we were talking about, his house for our friend group was like the place that you could just go and show up and you'd be welcomed and you could hang out there. Right. So we spent a lot of time like at that house together growing up.
0: Right, like yeah. the hangout house, right? You you were a part of that circle. Yeah, yes. like we, were, yeah.
1: we were constantly near each other, but we just yeah. weren't really bro-ish. You know what yeah. I'm saying? I didn't interact with her a whole lot, but she was always around.
2: Well, and then, so then I left for a year and then I came back. So this is all after this, right? And so I hadn't seen him in a long time or had any like really deep conversations with him in years, just been around him. Um, and at the time I was more shy than I am now. And I didn't say a lot of times what was on my mind, but I did that day because I ran into him at the baseball game and he was, you know, super, he was a big guy. What were you? Six, three. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much you weighed. He was a really big guy. And I was, he was telling so excited, telling me that he was going to be on the front lines, infantry and all this stuff, you know,
1: like I said, God complex. And he's thinking, he's thinking,
2: thinking. I'm gonna be like, Oh, you're so cool. And instead I'm like, like, I love you, and you want, do you have a death wish? Like, are you trying to die? Like, it's dangerous over there. Do you know what happens over there? And he completely, like, blew me off. Like, I remember he, like, left the area we were talking in so that, like, I'm still talking, and he's <laughs> walking away leaving because he was, like, just completely disregarded it, didn't want to have a conversation about it.
0: I mean, so, Tommy, yeah, like, was it, like, a out. lot of... But I mean, Tommy, your mindset, were you just like geared up, ready to go? Because like I got like a lot of infantry guys, man, they just want to be they just want to get into it. Right. I mean, was that you? You were just kind of waiting for this deployment from from your time enlistment?
1: No, I, I, I wouldn't say that. I didn't I didn't focus on the deployment the same way that other people did. I joined. Obviously, I joined the Marine Corps during wartime, but I never thought. That it that I would actually go to war. Does that make sense? Like yeah, that's surprising. Uh, like it, but yeah. It, it, it wasn't it, it wasn't a a forefront thought in my mind that like, oh, this is gonna happen. Like I joined the Marine Corps for future possibilities. Um in fact you thought you
2: were going on a Mew
1: the first it, trip, it, right? actually yeah I was we trained to go on a Mew uh, for the whole first year I was in three five actually. Wow. Um and for those of you guys that don't know a, a Mew is a marine expeditionary unit that you jump on boats and you, and you go port to port and you, uh, you train, uh, tactics in other places, you train, uh, uh other militaries and tactics that we use and stuff. Uh, but most importantly, this is what all the Marines are focused on is you get a party in other part in other parts of the world, other ports. And so that's what I trained to do until last second. Um, our battalion commander got it changed. But then as soon as it got changed, um, a bunch of guys started looking at, uh, like Googling where we were going and trying to pull up all this other data and stuff on it and trying to talk about it. And I refused to listen or, or research it myself or anything like that. Partially because I watched what it did to some of the other guys. Mm. Uh, we had a guy that's that fell. Notice my air quotes yep. um, from the third story balcony uh, a couple months before we deployed. Nobody else ever fell the entire time that I was in three, five, nobody else fell from the third story. I have no idea how there was a guy that both of it, that, uh, his wife somehow ran over both of his feet with the car, uh, and broke them like, and, and these were guys that researched this stuff. And so I was like, I don't want to know what's there. Like I you guys. And so, uh, I had formulated this belief in my head. Um, and this is important going forward to it, I had a conversation with my family about it, that deploying that I would either go to Afghanistan and come back completely fine. Okay. Or I would go to Afghanistan and never come back. Like, I literally had conversations with my mom about what I wanted done with my stuff before I deployed. Because when I deployed, I was 21. I was a little kid. And uh, my mom's like, what do you want done with your stuff when uh, if you die? And I said, I don't care. I'll be dead. Figure it out. Like, it didn't matter to me. Like, right. it was it was weird Like because I guess I didn't put stock in it. Like, you don't understand the, the gravity of, of death, if you will, until you've been close to it. And I had no idea of comprehending what, what was really coming. And and so
0: naturally nervous and concerned about going. No, not at all. Just ready to go do your job, but didn't want to look too much into it.
1: It wasn't even ready to go do my job. Like I didn't want to go to Afghanistan. Like I, I, it wasn't like there's guys that are like, Oh, I want to go get some. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a weird pride thing or anything like that. Like, I wanted to go because my bros were going because the yeah. dudes I loved were going. Um, and and there's no way that they were gonna go get in a fight anywhere, like, and and me not be there. I, if you don't think that's the thing, if you're down in Gaslamp area, of San Diego on a weekend, punch a Marine in the face and see how many other Marines are hidden in the background. Like, it, it it's that mentality that I couldn't I couldn't leave the bros. Like it's more so what it was than me actually wanting to go to Afghanistan.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I totally get it, and I guess. This is where you and I can relate a little bit because like both coming from small towns, but you get in there and you, I mean, you fall in love with these guys. Like my, my best friends today are my Marine brothers, right? Like that, the ones I talk to more regular than the guys I grew up with. I talk to these guys often and even if it's not often, like when we do talk, it's, we pick up right where we left, right? If there's, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm sure you do, but it's just like, those are the guys, like we just were, we grew together, right? I mean, 18, 19 years old, we just grew together over that time.
1: Well, mutual hardship uh, makes the bond tighter. I like, guess yeah. one thing that you hear all the time. And so these are guys, I, I, I want to preface this, the level of trust that you have with the people you serve with is crazy. There were guys that I was in the Marine Corps with that I didn't like as people that I just, I just didn't get along with. They rubbed me the wrong way. They're different people than I was. It was what it was. But these same guys that I didn't like, if I had to enter into a room to to, to clear a room or something like that, I knew that they would do exactly what they had to to make sure that everybody that entered the room was able to still leave the room. Yeah. And it, it it's weird because after, after the military, uh, I looked for that in everybody else in the civilian world, and it's not there.
0: Yes, right. I mean, and it's... I don't know. I tell people today, like, I don't know what you think about this, but it seems like, you know, we're we're conditioned for that camaraderie, you know, and we're looking for it. And but sometimes like people not having experienced that they're so and I don't this is a wrong choice word. I don't have a great vocabulary like University of Montana, Dara, but the uh, the, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but, you know, it's like they're not self-centered. But they're not concerned for others like the way we our camaraderie was. If you understand what I'm saying, right? Like it's just you don't. It's you have a hard time finding it outside of family. You know. Um, you know. I guess. Is, 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 am I making sense there?
1: <clears throat> oh, completely. It's actually to 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 show this. Um, I'm going to tell this story. We're going to move forward, and I'm going to tell the story of me getting of me getting injured and blown up because I always get asked by people if I thought that I was going to die. Um, When I got blown up and I never did. I trusted everybody around me was capable of making sure I was okay. And so I want to preface this. This is kind of gory. I apologize. This is how I remember it from when the IED detonated uh, to when I got on the helicopter. Um, We were sent out to do, uh, to go blow up some IEDs for a farmer uh, because um, the Taliban buries IEDs wherever they want to, that they think will directly hinder the U.S.'s movement or ability to perform um and i don't know or, or think that they care about the local populace um and so that's i mean how did long is,
0: how long were you there at this point? point four and a half months
1: this was december um 11th of 2010 the date was okay. 12 11 10 okay um i didn't think that it was good intel it was a weird place i didn't want to go out there we we're going into a t-intersection um but everything ended up being okay we went out there we detonated the IEDs in place and then we were headed back um and we we walked a road out that cars drove on so we could walk the road back because we thought that they didn't want to blow themselves up which is usually a pretty safe bet and uh so we get off the road to where our patrol base can see us and uh we're following the same cleared path that we walked in on because theoretically uh, the Taliban shouldn't have been able to backlay an IED because our post should have been watching them. We get slightly off of the road, not very far, and uh, we take a couple pop shots. Um, we all halt to where we are and try to figure out uh, where the shots come from so we can wait for follow on contact. Um, I am now the last guy out of 20. Uh, we've taken so many casualties that the team that I was in uh, was restructured and uh, broken up and put in different places. And so I was a rear guy. And uh, our squad leader says that we should keep moving because it is harder to find IEDs in the dark and it would soon be dark. It was about 4.30, 5 p.m. It was getting dusk. And so we keep moving. Me and the, uh, the other guy in front of me decide to leapfrog to hold the rear security, meaning that one guy would stay set and uh, another guy would move forward. Once he was set, the other guy would then come over him in a leapfrog. Um, we did this for a little while, and uh, made—I don't know—20, 50 feet. I'm not sure on that. And uh, my ears felt funny all of a sudden. Um, for those of you that have listened to this, or that are listening to this, that have played football or something like that, or possibly just had an older sibling slap your ears really hard, um, that's what happened. I had an overwhelming pressure in my ears. I was, uh, and I was floating. I felt weightless. And uh, I don't know if this part's true or not, but this is what I remember. Everything was moving really, really slow, Uh, like rocks, like everything. Like it was almost like I stalled in the air, if you will, not for very long. And then I slammed immediately back into the ground um, in the crater that was formed by the IED. And uh, this is where it gets gory. Um, I looked down at my left leg and uh, it looks like a massive hamburger. Uh, Looked like they put my leg through a, a meat grinder. And I could see exposed tendons and stuff looked like little rubber bands. And then on my right leg, I could see exposed bone, which I now assume is my tibia amphibia. I'm not sure. Uh, my foot is gone. <clears throat> and uh, and I can't feel anything at the time. And a figure comes running through the dust. And it's our, our corpsman. And he's trying to get me to lay down because uh, I was sitting upright. And I refused to to lay down. Um, and then he grabbed me by my chest and forced me out of my back from there they gave me morphine and for those of you that don't know uh i'm technically a triple amputee so they shouldn't have given me morphine um because i could have died but they gave me morphine and it brought me down just enough to where i felt pain so your brain can only has so many neural pathways to uh, to acknowledge that pain exists and it can only process so many of them at a time and um without the morphine my pain receptors were in a traffic jam after the morphine, I could feel everything. It felt like my bones had been shattered, exploding outwards, and then what was left had been lit on fire. Now,
0: is and that so, because because you're a triple amputee? Like, is that that's not what's what's supposed to happen? Like, or
1: no, it, it's it's supposed to to bring the pain down enough to where it's tolerable, but it actually just made me hurt. And I don't know if that's a common thing or whatever, but it calmed me down enough to where I felt my pain more so than anything. And then, so, well, after they did that, they, uh, put in an IV and, uh, started giving me fluids and they uh, wrapped a tourniquet around my right leg and stuffed it full of combat gauze, which combat gauze is a gauze that has a coagulation agent inside of it to help. So the blood will stop, um, spilling. Uh, they used to have a thing called quick clot, which any, any old heads that are listening to this, that stuff's horrible and it burns skin. So they had to change it. Did you have quick clot when you were in? Is that what mm. they used in your IFAC? It was like a weird powder.
0: I, I think so. To be honest with you, it, Yeah, I don't, it ended, up,
1: it ended up doing a lot of damage. They'd have to like cut back the burn after it was done. It saved lives, but they had to change it. And then, so on my left leg, while this is going on they're, they're put or they put a tourniquet on my left leg and it put a second one on and the corpsman says, I can't get it to quit bleeding. I can't get it to quit bleeding. And then that's when the, the stretcher arrived. Corporal, he was a corporal at the time, Corporal Finney uh, sprinted it up uh, the hill, didn't wait for a route to be cleared, and uh, and they put me on the stretcher. And um, before they put me on the stretcher, I picked up my left hand, and it was the first time I'd actually looked at it. And so uh, I didn't feel any pain or anything with it. And so it's hard to tell in the camera, but this is all scar tissue. Um, it had blown my pinky and ring finger off of my left hand, um, and then my middle finger and index finger were detached but held on by the tendons and then my thumb was broken and twisted backwards uh and that was because I was left-handed and uh, I was holding my gun my thumb was behind the gun and the rest of the fingers were in front of the gun where the blast pushed up so they get me put onto the stretcher and they're starting to pack me down and uh I have a conversation with Tomasu and I ask him I'm like dude are my legs still there like I could feel them." and he says no bro they're gone and uh, then I asked him the most important question, because anybody I treated in Afghanistan asked me this question as well. And so I was like, bro, is my stuff there? And uh, he goes, what? I was like, you know, man, the stuff. And he says, I didn't check. So uh, I have him check. The stuff is there. I did take some some injury to uh, I have half one testicle and like 5% of the other one. But uh, they were carrying me down the the hill, and the corpsman was trying to carry the IV IV bag, so I took it from him, and I was holding it. And as we were going uh, down the side hill, I had to drop the IV bag to hold on to the stretcher, and it pulled the IV out of my um, arm. They get me down to the truck, and then when I get into the truck uh, is when it gets hazy. I don't really remember a whole lot of it. I do remember this part. Uh, The corpsman told me that I couldn't take a nap. Um, I would die, and I told him that he was wrong. I was tired. I just needed to take a nap, and I'd be okay. And uh, he told me that, no, if I did nap, I would in fact die. So anytime that my eyes closed, I was violently and viciously slapped awake um, until we got to the helicopter. There's a part that I learned that I was going to include in this story later, um, but uh, the guy that, Finney, that carried this stretcher, told me something that I don't remember from the story at all. Uh, he said that when they got me to the truck, they asked me how I was doing. And apparently I responded with thumbs up all day, bro. Um, I don't remember saying that. I don't know what else I did, but he told me that, um, he told me that actually after I got sober, but we'll get into that later. They got me to the helicopter. They got me put on the, the helicopter. Um, and then they snowed me. Um, for those of you that don't know, they put you in a medical coma to try to transport you. It makes it easier for you to transport. Um, But before that, this is the only time in the entire, uh, evolution of my injury that I thought I would die. Um, I was on the helicopter and they gave me another IV and then they put propofol in my IV to put me to sleep. Um, propofol is acidic. Uh, you can feel it burn through your veins. Mm. Um, and, uh, I felt it creep up my veins and burn, uh, up my arm, up into my shoulder and up into my neck. And my final thought that I had, um, uh, was, wasn't this how, uh, another Marine died. And, um, that was the thought that I had as I went to sleep. I woke up three days later in Bethesda, Maryland with my m- uh, mom and my uncle standing at the foot of my bed. Um, and, uh, I thought I was still in Afghanistan and I told them I was like, you guys, you can't be here. I don't know how you got here. It's not safe. Um, and they put me back to sleep and I don't know if I woke up later that day or the next morning. Um, but, uh, when I woke up, I didn't remember losing my legs, to be entirely honest. At first, um, it took me, uh, I was on ketamine, and uh, a adverse reaction to ketamine can be hallucinations. Um, and so it took me the five days I was on ketamine, I, I thought I still had legs. I kept asking my mom to uh, pick my foot up off of the floor that we were in because the carpet was tickling it. Hmm. even though uh, we were in a hotel room with tile. I don't even think I've ever been in a hotel or not a hotel room, sorry, a hospital room with tile. I don't even think I've been in a hospital room with carpet, but I thought carpet was tickling my feet. It was was weird. And um, when my mom came over, actually, let me back up. At first, the Marine Corps told my mom, they got a hold of her and told her that my injuries were different than what she found out. I think it's hilarious. Um, But, yeah, the she was told different injuries than what I actually have. Um, and, uh, she was able to make it to Maryland, um, in the same amount of time that it took me to get from Afghanistan to Maryland. She actually saw me get off of the ambulance and be brought into the hospital.
0: So, and how, how was she through, through all this? (laughs) I have to figure out how I want to say it correctly.
1: Um, I'm very grateful that my mom did what she did to help me. My mom dropped, uh, everything that she had back here in Montana um, and spent 18 months with me trying to help me get my life figured out. Um, she uh, actually, even in that time, uh, um, was very diligent in making sure that um, I didn't become addicted to opiates and a bunch of other things. Like did all of these things to try to make sure that I was still going to be okay, which I'm very grateful for that. Another thing that she did was, and, and my injury on its own did, was brought attention um, to me from the local community where we're at. Um, as we said, I live in a small community. Um, and so when I came back home the very first time, uh, because sadly, when I got injured, it reminded this <laughs> my little sleepy community that America was still at war. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and I was highlighted. Uh, I was raised um, far above what I feel that I should have been and called um, a hero. I struggled with that for a long time um and uh why is that why did i struggle with being called a hero yeah because i'm not i'm not special i got the opportunity to walk with giants and serve with heroes but me myself i'm just a dude that stepped in the wrong place and what you see is the consequence of my misplaced step and sort of elevate me or highlight me is, is uh unnecessary i just i went i did i came back cool like I, there's one thing I can tell you that that bomb will never hurt anybody else like I killed that thing, but like that doesn't make me a hero, man <laughs> and it but here's what here's what uh, the other thing that it, it caused at the time um internally with me is so all of these people um hold on, I have to back up. when I came home the very first time, they held a fundraiser for me uh, locally and uh, even before that, um they had a gathering at the airport for me. And when I came out of the, the gate for the airport, the entire lobby was full of people and news cameras and all of this stuff. And then we got into the uh, the car that we were going to, that was going to drive me to the hotel to stay in polson And then 500 cars followed the procession back for the hour drive back. Like it was in February and there were people lined alongside the road out in the cold, waving signs and like all of this stuff that I, I'm, I'm grateful that they did, but, I don't know that I needed to be elevated that high. And, and then they held the fundraiser the next day, something like 2,200 people or maybe more, I don't know, came and ate spaghetti and, and said hi to me and everything. And so many people told me I was an inspiration and how nothing had changed and how incredible it was that I could go through that and be the same dude and this and that. Um, and it caused me to fracture myself or to not cause me because that would give them the power. Um, it made me believe that I needed to maintain a uh, a persona, uh, a public persona, if you will, um, that showed that uh, I was lighthearted, that I didn't really care about my uh, injury, that uh, you know all these things. But it caused me to separate into two people, um, and it caused me to become. It created a facade. Because what was really going on. What was really going on is uh, I was struggling, but I wouldn't tell anybody that I was struggling. I was always happy. Um, in fact, in this time that I'm speaking of, you came and hung out with me. Was it was the first time we hung out since I got injured? Right.
2: Yeah, I came and visited you at the bowling the alley.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: after the fundraiser was over so I could actually get to talk to the baby celebrity over there.
0: <laughs> Now, was <laughs> that the first time like that you got to talk to him? Like since you were talking about the, you, he, he walked away from you at the, uh, the, where, the gathering where you were, you were trying to ask him if he had a death wish, blah, blah, blah. Was this the next time you got to see him, you know, after um, that?
2: This, that was the first time that I got to see him face to face, uh, since his injury. Yeah. Yep. So I had been uh, at the time I was going to school online, like we were talking about and uh, was home with a lot of kids when that happened. And um, it was really, really moving though, to see, like, like he said, like people had just forgotten that we were at war still and it really just brought the war like right to our house. It felt like, you know, or our right to our community. And yeah, it was very moving to see people rallying around him. And I was super interested to see how he would be. Um, and when I met up with him, he, you know, was was cracking jokes, um, periodically being his moody self that I remembered from high school. Um, so he seemed the same and different at the same time, but he's still like, he has a really good sense of humor. It can be pretty dark at sometimes, which I know is a common military thing. Um, But my family jokes around a lot too. So I was very, you know, comfortable with it. And yeah, it was, it was just good to see him in person. Cause I just, I had felt like he was not okay. Even though like I knew he was home and stuff, I felt like he was not okay till I got to spend some time with him. And I don't think I left there thinking like, oh, everything's rainbows and sunshine. Like, I knew he was going through things, but he, he had put on a really good facade for every, like it was super interesting watching him interact with other people in the bowling alley, um, which his, his mom and stepdad owned the bowling alley. So he grew up there, spent a lot of time there. Mm. Um, Yeah. And yeah, I don't know what I'm saying there. (laughs) (laughs) It was just uh, something that I had been, I'd thought about him a lot. Like I, I know I wasn't the only one in our community that, you know, everybody changed their Facebook profiles and all the signs on all the businesses said, we're praying for Tommy. And, you know, looking back on it now, I I think we were trying to be very as supportive as we, we could with him. But I don't think it was what he needed.
0: Hey, guys, Dale here. And I wanted to take a quick break to invite you to join the launch of the Lions Guy community called The Pride. You see, whether it was at work dealing with the demands of the day or maintaining the demands of my life at home, I always seemed to feel like my struggles were unique. Like somehow I was the only one struggling to find joy amidst all the weight that I felt I was carrying each day. And, you know, what I've come to realize is that we all have our struggles that we're up against and it's pretty demanding. The only way to rise to those demands is to decide and make the change to adopt a growth mindset, to be what I call a high performer. And that's why I started Lion's Guide. I want to help you break through to the next level of you and your ability to not only meet but exceed those demands on you and in doing so, find your joy again. If you're a growth-minded individual ready to make a change, then I'm here for you. And this is how you get started. I invite you to visit lionsguide.com and sign up to join the pride. The Pride is the Lions Guide community for growth-minded members like you. Once signed up, you'll get special access to all the free content and resources I'm putting out there. You'll also be invited to join my live online events where I host sessions on personal growth and high performance. You'll also be able to engage with other growth-minded members on our private online group. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast as a member, you'll get access not only to all the podcasts, but also the podcasts that have been yet to be released. So get access to all this and more. So break out of that rut. Break into your next level and join me on lionsguide.com and let's grow together. Go to lionsguide.com and become a member of the pride today. Now back to the show. And what do you say Because I'm curious to this because like, obviously, you know, Tommy's talking about he, 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 he didn't, he appreciated what everyone was doing, but he didn't look at himself as a hero. Like, how did you, how do you feel when he says that? Like, do you like, is this, is this a debate that you guys have had? Like, you know, to, because, man, I, I got to say, right, like we talk about sacrifice, right? Like take the hero part out of it. I think like when you volunteer and to go fight for our country and such a sacrifice is made, like that's got to be honored. Like that, that's, you know, whether we call you hero or not, whether you appreciate it or not, like we honor your sacrifice, um, if that makes sense. Is, is this something that 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 you've talked about?
1: Yeah, I've talked about it with with a lot of people. Um, In fact, the guy that carried this stretcher, um, Finney, is who got me to change my mind on it. I'm still very close with him. Um, I actually plan to have him be my best man at my wedding because I'm marrying a woman that saved my life. So it's only fair to have the man that helped save my life um, be my best man. But um, so you said signed and joined to go fight for our country. That's not why I joined. And so uh, me going you've, to you've joined
0: knowing that was a risk. We all do, right? I, like, no, we, we, no, I'm
1: being dead serious. That was not in my mind. Like I, and, and people don't understand that, but that was not in my mind. I joined with the intent of the experience that I could glean from the Marine Corps to do something bigger than I ever had. And so when I got told I was going to Afghanistan, it fell under the scope of my job title and what was expected of me. And so I did it. And so to elevate me for something you expected. Okay. Um, Let me flip this around. Like, do you say thank you when, uh, and it can be a, a, whatchamacallit, a rhetorical question, but do you say thank you every time that a waitress refills your drink? Yes. Okay. Some people don't because it's under their job specification. Okay. That's what you're supposed to do. And so to thank me for what I was, what fell under the title of my job didn't make sense to me. And then I have to go deeper with this. Like, Afghanistan isn't a war that that it wasn't an imminent threat to me necessarily like World War One and World War Two. Um, I'm not trying to downplay what happened on September 11th. That was very sad. Um, however, I, people say that I went and protected their freedoms. I, from my perspective, from a guy that was there, like I didn't I didn't protect any freedom in America. And so to elevate me like to the same status of the, the people that went and fought uh, against the Nazis or anything like that, like I'm not that dude.
0: And and how did your, uh, did you say Finley? Finley is your best man? Finney. Finney, Finney. Now, how you said Finney changed your mind on that. Like he he changed your mind to that perspective or you have a different perspective? To a different
1: perspective. He said one statement, okay? Tell me a time in history when a hero told other people that's what they were. Right. Heroes don't get to decide that that's what they are. If other people want to elevate you to a heroic status because of something you did that you might not feel as important, that's fine allow them to do so. Allow them to celebrate your win.
0: Yeah. Look, man, I appreciate your humility for sure. I mean, <laughs> but, but I, will still honor your, your, your sacrifice for your service, you know? And I get it. Like I get you, man. You're talking to a guy. I don't even have my VA card, man. Like I don't walk around going, look at me. I'm a Marine. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think, I think you and I are on the same page with that, right? Like I'm not walking around <laughs> and I know some of my friends do this. So, Don't take offense to this. But some guys go and they go, do you have a veteran discount, man? I would never do that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not I didn't join the Marines to get veteran discounts. So I I feel you. I I understand where you're trying to go. But at the same time, you know, you 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 made a sacrifice. We all do, you know, um, when we when we sign up, because I'd say, you know, what what people should respect about people who volunteer for the military, because look, yeah, I'll give it. I got free college. I got all the benefits of the military, but I'll say what people need to know about even joining the U.S. armed forces is we do sacrifice our freedoms. Where do we start this? Right, we're told where to go, what to wear, where to live. Right, like we, you know, and we're held to the UCMJ, so we're held at a different standard. So even at its at its base level, we make sacrifices. Now, are we compensated and all that? Yes, but it is a it, we, you know, to to volunteer for service is is a sacrifice and which could go all the way up through to someone's life, you know, which which sounds like you have brothers that did so. So I, I feel like here or not, I'm, I'll be with you on there. But I think we should always be honoring the sacrifice, you know, because it's also it's not just the, the, the military members, but their families and their close ones who also I'm sure, as you know, like, feel the pain of you know, the circumstances, uh, whether it's as simple as them being gone on enlistment or, or then deployment or, you know, injury or worse. Right. Like, so, so it, there is a lot to honor, I think. And, you know, that, so, so I still honor you, you know, you know, <laughs> with regard but, to that, because I think that's important, you know, I, I
1: agree. I, I, I honored other veterans and service members sacrifices. Um, I I'm very big on, on, Especially Vietnam and Pat, like before, um, I have to admit that if I see veterans from my generation wearing their, their hats and their other stuff like that, I will not come thank you. I'm sorry. I don't know what it is about, like, and I'm not downplaying your service, but I'm more inclined to thank older generations for their service, um, and, and, uh, and their sacrifice. I think young generations too, if their sacrifice is obvious, um, I don't know. It, it's, it's situation to situation, but myself, I just, I personally don't feel, that um, I should be held to a, a put on a plateau for that or a, not a plateau? But you get what I'm saying? Um, pedestal. Beca- because pedestal. a pedestal, yeah. Because um, that is no longer who I am. Like that's part of my identity, but it, it's not my whole identity anymore. I want to. Uh, there's a, a gentleman. Um, I can't think of his last name now. He's in one of the people that works for uh, Mission Six Zero. He's actually in the book behind me, Deliberate Discomfort. Uh, but he talks about he was sitting in a helicopter um, and he looked around. and He's like, wow, you know, this, this is a can of whoop-ass, if you will. And um, he's like, I don't ever, I, I refuse to be, have this be my peak, to have this be the coolest I ever was. And so if people are routinely like, highlighting how cool I used to be, then then it's, I don't know, that's my take on it.
0: Yeah, no, look, yeah. I I the saying I love to use there is the used to bees don't make no honey, right? I used to be a marine, I used to this, I used to that. I was the, you know, all star wrestler in high school. I'll go wrestling with you guys, right? It's like, yeah, what are you doing now, man? You're forty four. Like, what, what are you doing? Like what, you know, and that that so yeah, I'm I'm with you, man. You know, we gotta keep grinding, like we can't live our glory days, you know, we gotta keep finding that well, next level.
1: You you have to continuously grow, as I'll highlight in the next part of my story, like after I got injured, um, I chose to stagnate. I wasn't trying to go anywhere. I wasn't trying to achieve anything. And because of it, I allowed myself to slip into, uh, a hell, I guess, if you will, um, that I manufactured that I, I grew bigger. And so after my mom moved back to Montana, um, I got hurt, or at least I thought I did. And I got put back on pain pills, started taking more than I was supposed to. Um, and, uh, to quote a, a movie or not a movie, but a song. Um, he says, painkillers don't work when the pain that you're killing is yourself. And, uh, I didn't understand that at the time. And my addiction grew more and more and more. And then, um, November 26th of 2012, I got out of the Marine Corps and, uh, I was supposed to move from Montana back to, uh, or from San Diego back to Montana. And, uh, I was naive and thought that I could quit doing drugs when I came back. That, uh, I didn't have um I apologize my throat itches that I didn't have the network um in Montana to get the pills that I did in California because by this time the pills that I was using I wasn't being prescribed I was being prescribed some of them but my appetite was so ferocious that it wasn't enough Mm. and so I was
0: buying them from the street and um you talking about the 18 thing. months since your industry, just trying to piece the timeline together. Did you go from Walter Reed to San Diego for 18 months? Is that?
1: Yeah. So 18 months was the total time. I was in Walter Reed for two months um, or nine weeks, somewhere around there. I had uh, one surgery uh, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for seven weeks. Hmm. Um, and then I had a week of no surgeries. And then they moved me to San Diego where I was still inpatient briefly uh, for, I think, another week. And then after that, I went home. And then uh, for the next 12 months, 13 months, I learned to try to walk on my prosthetics and everything. And my mom was still there. And then when my mom left is when this drug addiction started because her system to make sure that I wasn't abusing them was no longer in place. So I have to I have to highlight that because my mom did a tremendous amount of work trying to make sure this didn't happen. Hmm. And then so I got addicted to pain pills. I moved back to Montana thinking I could quit. And uh, but I wasn't actually planning to quit. Like, I, I don't think I was at the time. Um, and the problem was nobody knew that I did drugs or very few people did, but not people that I thought would care or hold it against me. Um, and so there, there was a facade. I kept the two separate. Everybody thought that I was sober and doing good and all this stuff. But really, I was just really, really high
0: all the time. And is this during, like while you're being celebrated, like we talked about earlier? Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, I'm, okay. I'm still,
1: right. I'm still being celebrated and held to high esteem. Like I can't, I can't, when I come back to Montana, I can't go to Walmart without people cornering me. How you doing? It's good to see you. Like you're such a hero. All like, I want to point this out all while I'm very high and nobody knows that I'm abusing these pain pills at the time. This goes on further and further. Um, and to, to point out some of the highlight things to to show how I was being elevated, um, they built an addition on uh, my mom's house that I could stay in until I got a home from Homes for Our Troops, which was donated to me. Um, I was still working as a public speaker at the time, and uh, I was actually trying to work for Mission Six Zero at the time. I had done a couple of events for them, but then uh, my drug addiction became more aware to people. I I couldn't control it anymore or wasn't able to or the facade I thought I'd put in place wasn't working and people started pulling away from me and then when people started pulling away I started pulling away from more people because I found out that as if you're not close to people then they can't tell you that they don't agree with what you're doing mm. and so uh the lady that I was dating at the time uh, she was actually my fiance decided she was done doing drugs and left and so I decided that I should try to be done doing drugs so I could have my old life back to me. And um, I went through treatment, and I tried to talk to her right after treatment and said, hey, can we be a thing again? Or She told me no, that chapter in our life is, is closed, and um, I'm sorry. Good luck. And so I didn't care after that. I didn't continue to pursue sobriety, um, but that caused the shift. So before that, I tried to hide that I was an addict. I didn't let anybody know. But after that, after I went to treatment the first time, I let everybody know that I was an addict, but not in a positive way, not in a way that you hear somebody that went through AA or NA. Somebody that's in recovery uses it um, because they show it is something that they have overcame. I use it as a badge of permission to act however I wanted to. Mm. Like, I was just be like, well, that's how junkies act. Like I do, you know, I'm doing junky things because it stole power from other people around me that were trying to judge me off of my junkiness, if you will and then so uh after she left um i decided that i was going to take a head first dive off a real tall cliff and search for rock bottom Mm. um and let me tell you uh i said this to my mom because periodically she would call me and tell me that she wanted her uh the old tommy back she wanted her son back and um that she just wanted me to hit rock bottom so i could i could find my way up from there and uh let me tell you rock bottom has a basement and that basement has a sub-basement, and that one has another basement. You as the individual are the person that decides what your rock bottom is. Hmm. Um, so don't wait for that absolute worst-case scenario for you to, ah, it hasn't, you know, you feel like you're still winning the game, so you keep playing. Um, let me tell you, I've played this game long ways, and you never win. And then so uh, from there, my house was raided the very first time on um, December 11th of 2016. This is your um, mom's house or the my house? I, my house. I was given by homes for our troops. Hmm. Um, and it was raided because gentlemen that I was in the Marine Corps with um, came up there to try to do an uh, intervention. Um, because
2: Yeah, they came from all over the, the nation to try to talk to him about
1: To it. try to help me. Uh, a guy that I treated um, four days before I got injured, Finney that carried the stretcher, other guys that I was in the Marine Corps with, um, they showed up. They came in the house. And so I I want to point this out. Like These are all guys that I told you earlier in this podcast that I loved, that uh, that I would have done anything for in Afghanistan uh, or what we were in. But they came to my house to call me on my stuff. Um, And I had track marks up and down my arms. For those of you that don't know, track marks are bruises from injection sites that were done incorrectly, um, and it leaves a bruise. Uh, It is usually a very telltale sign of a junkie, especially a new junkie. Um, because at this point in time, I was using needles and I wasn't using pain pills anymore. I was now addicted to heroin and methamphetamine. Um, and they came up and they had prepared words and um, they were all very kind and they just wanted me to be better. And uh, I made fun of them and, uh, and I cracked jokes while they were trying to be heartfelt. And uh, I told some of them, I don't even know why you came here. We're not even friends. I don't even like you. Um, I also want to point out that this was... The first time that I met my niece, I have two nieces. The first time I met my niece and I didn't see her again for two years after this. So they did all this. And, uh, the police came in too and, um, tried to get me to do some things and that I didn't agree to. And then, uh, I got sent to treatment, um, in Sheridan, Wyoming. This Was is the in, second time. No, this is the first, uh, this is the second treatment. Yes, sir. Okay. Yep. Um, I got sent to treatment there. Uh, I left that treatment against medical advisement. Uh, and, um, that started a horrible cycle of, uh, I really didn't care at all about anything anymore. I was going to operate how I wanted to operate and it didn't matter. Um, I got sent to, so between the first treatment and now I've been to nine treatments. Um, I also, uh, my house got raided another time, March 11th of 2017. Um, this was actually the third raid, but this is the raid that I actually caught a charge from. Um, I got possession of uh, heroin and possession of narcotics. Um, and I got incarcerated. And let me tell you, the first time that I went to jail, it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying because I didn't know if I could survive mm-hmm. in jail, in a wheelchair. Like my brain was spun up, all this other stuff. I had no idea if I could make it. But then I found out I could which was even more terrifying because I quit caring that I was going to jail. Mm. Um, and so all this that I just covered briefly, cause I'm trying to get to the most important part of my drug addiction story. Uh, this is about a 10 year period, um, where I, from between when I started, uh, my pain pills to, um, blossoming all the way to becoming a professional drug addict and doing methamphetamine, um, and I, I threw professional in there to try to make lighthearted of it. I made poor choices. Like drug addiction isn't something you should laugh at. But if you're a person that's been through it, you tend to laugh at it because you realize how dumb you were. Um, but so during all this time, like I, I come out of jail the very last time or the very first time, sorry, uh, was September 16th. Um, and my birthday is September 18th. Um, they released me from jail September 16th. And I, I bet that all of you can guess what I did on my birthday because I thought that I deserved it. Um, I relapsed. You
0: were in for how long? How long were
1: you in jail? Uh, That time I was in from February to September. A total I was in 18 months, but that time was February
0: to September. So you're getting out after a six-month stint-ish? Yeah. 6 Yeah.
1: Immediately relapsed. Didn't take any time. You know, got right down to it. But something else very cool uh, happened that day um, that I didn't know was going to steer me a different direction over time. Um, I ran into Dara, actually. Um, tell your part of your, this story.
2: <laughs> well, that, that day, uh, my oldest son had to have surgery in Missoula. And so... Um, something he had complications during the surgery they were short-staffed at the hospital so I had been awake literally all night wiping up blood he was coughing up blood Mm. all night so you know I was really not feeling good the next day I felt like I'd been up all night doing something like that and that I didn't look my best but anyway I ran into I I ran into him at the gas station
1: I want to I want to point out real quick on my way she home. felt that she didn't look good. Uh, she looked like an absolute angel to me. And uh, so I felt the need like I had to talk to her. And I did. I'd, I hollered out the window. I think I said, what's up? Or, hey, Dara or something. Um, I honestly expected her to just like wave and walk away. Um, but she came over the window and talked to me.
0: But Dara, had had you – like so this was – this is at – the 10, years of drug use, blah, blah. blah. Like, did you know what was going on with him? Were you a part of any of the, uh, interventions or anything like that? Like, what did you know about what was going on with him at this point?
2: So probably a year prior to that, um, is when I finally realized, like, I didn't know for the first, whatever, eight, nine years, what was going on. Um, but but then he had asked um, if he could borrow money. And I, I was like, yeah, that's a, whatever, you know, childhood friend. And so i like when I met up with him, though, and looked into his eyes. So Tommy, like he talks with his hands. He's loud. He cracks a lot of jokes, you know, and his eyes were just black and dead. And there was no facial expressions at all. Like it was not my Tommy that like I had grown up with. Um, when I met up with him back that, that year ago to lend him some money. And so, uh, yeah, so I had known what was going on. And so then I, I see him and I go visit with him and I look in his eyes this time and he's trying to be animated and stuff, but his eyes are still black. And normally he has like this beautiful honey colored. Yeah. He's <laughs> frowning right now. He's got gorgeous eyes though, ladies, gorgeous brown <laughs> eyes, um, but so, so I knew that, you know, he was most likely high and meth is a huge problem. We live on the Flathead Indian reservation and I swear all the reservations are just targeted more for drug distribution too. So, um, and then, and that's actually a reason that I have four adopted kids. Like meth has played a a big part just in our being prevalent in our community and in, in affecting the people that we love in our community. Um, so when I met up with him, like I could tell he was high, but he was, Super chatty, super chatty, um, and the first question he asked is,
1: "Hold on, I want to ask it." Uh, so um, I'm like, "Hi, how are you?" And immediately to be respectful, so I know to that be
2: she, respectful. So
1: yes. she did air quotes in case you guys don't ever see video footage of this. Um, so I was like, "Hey, how, you know, how's your husband? How's the kids?" Um, because I feel that that is respectful. That is a polite thing to do. Um his and, eyes
2: didn't look polite. I'm just gonna throw it out there. But uh
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so um she says that she had uh that she'd gotten a divorce. Um and I tell her, uh I'm sorry to hear that. Uh and I thought that I was extremely genuine and sincere in my verbiage and everything that I said. Was I?
2: Um, it kind of, no, it was like a wolf-sheep situation is what it felt
0: like. <laughs> you know, I love that analogy, right? Because you, uh, as a Marine, I can say I've seen Marines with that kind of tone <laughs> and that sly fox, you know. Yeah, I, I know I know exactly what Dara's describing here.
2: Um, so he invited me out for coffee.
1: Hold on, I have, to, I have to throw this out there. I hate coffee. I've never drank coffee in my entire life. Coffee tastes, tastes like angry weird earwax. But if it got me the opportunity to sit across the table from her and maybe bend her ear a little bit, yeah, I'll, I'll choke down some coffee. Um, and she responded very quickly, very, very charming, very warmly. Yeah, we'll, we'll go to coffee. She ignored me for three months. Mm. I hit her up all the time trying to go to coffee.
2: A couple times.
0: Okay, a couple times. <laughs> because why, Dara? What were you thinking? What was going on?
2: What was going on? Well, I had just gotten divorced and was at now and then i had a biological son during that time so trying to be a single mom to five kids um and had started my other position uh with a non-profit here in, here locally and so i was really busy doing that and didn't think it would be a good idea to go have coffee with someone who's still doing meth pretty much
1: she was right guys if anybody that's doing meth invites you out for coffee don't go it's, it's not it's not a good life.
2: Well, well, well let, let me say, too, like, if if I would have felt like it would have just been a friend request, yes, but you guys, he was, like, he was eyeing me like he was that wolf, and I was, like, the plumpest sheep he had ever seen in his life. So that is that is why I kept holding him off for a
1: while. Makes me happy to use plump. Um, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so she ignored me, which is honestly probably best because over these next uh, – months. I kept going to jail every two weeks for two weeks Um, until finally my probation officer got tired of me uh, doing that. And uh, she said, I think I'm going to send you to treatment, Tommy. And I was like, yeah, you should. I have a problem. I'm a drug addict. Um, I want to point out that it was, you could tell by my tone of voice when I said that, that I had no intention of changing going to to treatment. I just didn't want to be in jail because in drug treatment, I can have Copenhagen and my cell phone and way more freedom. So yeah, I have a problem. Send me somewhere. Um, And she sent me back to the Helena VA Drug Treatment Center, um, which is where I went the first time. I've been there several times, actually. In fact, they weren't even sure that they wanted to let me back in because they didn't know if I would take the uh, treatment program serious this time because it didn't seem like I had any of the other times. I really don't think that I would have, to be entirely honest, Uh, had I not been sitting in my room at the treatment center and... um, Dara posted on Snapchat of all things, a picture of a dinner that she had cooked. I'm a lot thinner now, but I am still a fat kid at heart and I love food. Uh, she posted some steaks, some asparagus, some stuff. And I was like, Whoa, you can cook too. Like what? Um, and we started talking, but I did something with her that I hadn't done with anybody else. When I started talking to them, um, I told her absolutely everything that she wanted to know, uh, to use a statement she has said, um, My candor with her at the time allowed allowed us to build a bedrock to build upon, even though neither one of us were looking for it at the time. Because I have to point out that when her and I started talking, like I didn't plan for her to be my fiance and she didn't want to date me.
0: Like, I, you know what I'm saying? Were you, were you, was this for you when, when you say you told her everything, had the tone changed? Like, was it no longer like the sarcastic, like I'm a junkie, like you're talking about earlier, or was it more? honest about your situation for what it was. Yeah, no, it was,
2: it was like absolute honesty. Like, I don't know what, what it was that, that made him feel like that, that was okay. But I don't think that you can truly grow with someone and I don't think you can heal yourself. Or as we learned in some recent work, we did correctly like file your inner dialogue until you have been like honest, not just with yourself, but with someone else. So I think, for both of us. I mean, for both of us. Yeah, it was, it was something to build on.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was. And it, it did something that uh, no other person had caused me to do. So I got released from there February 40th. Um And I stayed sober for five days, which those of you listening to this might laugh or snicker, Ooh, five days, like, it might as well have been 10 years at the time in my life. Like, for me to stay sober for five days, except for the fact that I didn't change anything else about my life, I just quit doing drugs, and so I I relapsed five days later. Um, Dara and I had hung out a little bit in between uh, when I was sober that period, and I told her, um, "Well, I'm back to you know I'm back to my side of the fence. You stay on your side of the fence. You don't belong over here. Bye." And she said something to me that at first hurt my feelings and made me mad. To be honest, she said that I like. Or yeah, I like, or I don't like that you do drugs, but I like you. Or I, yeah, sorry, but that's not you. Yeah. Yeah.
2: What I told him was, I said, I don't like that you do drugs, but that is not who you are. And I like who you are.
1: Which (laughs) this wasn't her intent, but it made me question like that she was telling me that I'm not a real person. Um, (laughs) And uh, at that point in time in my life, I was like, being real was very, very important. Like that is your whole, like everybody in the streets, like, Oh, I'm real. I like, and so the fact that I felt like she was calling me make believe like that I was mm-hmm. like a facade, like it upset me. And here's why it upset me because she was right. Because the decade I had just spent doing drugs wasn't who I truly was, but it is what I had been doing to try to fill a void or something. And uh, I also want to include this. Dara is uh sapiosexual, which means she's attracted to intelligence. Okay. And so because of that, when I used, I wasn't the same person. And so it caused me to attempt to control my use. I realized that an addiction or anything like that, that that is an oxymoron, that that's not something that can happen, that you can't control your use. Okay. I want you guys to know that for this brief period, I did. I controlled my use because I didn't want to be around her when I was high because I wanted to communicate with her on the level that we had been. And so I didn't use before I saw her, which caused me to cut my use down. But it didn't keep me out of jail. Um, I went back to jail February 14th, actually. Um, Tara and I went on a date for Valentine's Day for me to go to jail. And this is important because it's the only time I ever bonded out of jail. Um I could have called. I called my mom, and she wouldn't do it. I called my sisters; they wouldn't do it. There's nobody in my family that would willingly sign on the line to bond me out because it was too big of a risk. They didn't know what I what I would do. Madar agreed to it. Uh, I paid the bond myself, but she was held accountable for the remainder of the bond if I didn't go to court. Hmm. And after that was done, when I got released from jail and I rode in the car with her, I asked her. I was like, "You understand that if I don't go to court, that you owe five grand." And she said, yes, but you'll go. And um, I don't know if I can mimic her tone or the feeling with it, for you guys to understand, but it wasn't threatening or authoritative tone. It was belief. It was trust that I wouldn't screw her over. And it blew my mind because I came from a street life where everybody wanted something for something. So what did she want? And on top of that, I also have to preface this, that when Dara and I first started dating, if you will, she thought that I was first of all, poor, poor, like didn't have any money. And second of all, that I was homeless. Like I truly was homeless. I always joke around that it was the adoptive felon program <laughs> because, um, so after that I went back to jail. Okay. Uh, I got released the 14th. I went back to 21st and then the 21st was the last time that I
0: was in jail. Um, and this was of 2019. Nope. Tommy, tell me, like you're talking about, like you're in jail every two weeks. Like, what was putting you back in jail?
2: Drug tests. Uh,
1: right? Yeah, drug
2: tests not, tests. not showing up for probation
1: appointments, being okay. late to probation appointments. Like, my so uh, I was going to get to that in this part. So, what she had done, what my probation officer had done, is collected any probation infraction that I possibly could have accumulated with the intent of revoking my probation. She was building a case. And so she had to put me in jail every time. To, to show that there was a probation infraction. And so I got sent back to jail March, uh, sorry, not March, February 21st. And then um, I thought I was gonna spend the rest of my bit incarcerated. And so I told Dara, I was like, hey, like you are too incredible to be by yourself. Um, don't wait for me. Um, and what did you say?
2: I said, I'll be here.
1: Yeah, like I told her not to wait for me and she told me, no, I'm waiting. Which was crazy to me, because if you've never been incarcerated, um, it's a groundhog's, it's groundhog's day. It's a timeless echo of the same damn thing every day. And so for me to expect somebody, um, anybody, especially somebody of Dara's caliber, to wait to put their life on hold because I was incapable of making wise decisions as an adult to stay out of here is crazy. to me. But she wouldn't listen to me. Um, and we got lucky because uh, I got transferred back to Lake County, where I started this whole thing at. And, and I,
2: I he never mentions this, but so a lot of times people, and this is a very small jail, right? So there's nobody else in a wheelchair there. So he was in isolation a good hmm. portion of his time because they were, you know, said, oh, he might use his wheelchair as a weapon or someone else might attack him, blah, blah, blah.
1: I was in isolation for the safety of myself and others is what they told me when I asked. Um, But I got put back in the same isolation cell. And I'm going to throw this part in there to not be boastful or anything, but I want you to understand how the community viewed me at the time. Um, I got sent back to Lake County and my bond was Mm. $500,000. I had a higher bond than people that were in there being investigated for murder. That is what Lake County viewed of me that I was literally the sole reason that drugs and all this other stuff happened. And so, uh, my attorney tells me, he's like, all right, we're going to try to work a deal. Um, and we're going to, we're going to convince the court that you do drugs because you have PTSD. And I told him to his face, I was like, I don't do drugs because I have PTSD. I do drugs because I like them. Um, and he said, cool, don't say that in court.
0: Uh, <laughs> and, um, uh, <laughs> anyway, and, uh, I, because I was thinking that I'm sure I was like, the lawyer's going to say, say anything but that. And yeah, go ahead. T- uh, he,
1: there was a, t- a ton of times in court. He told, he would tell me, here's what I need you to do, Tommy, shut up. That's all I need you to do when we're in court. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I did say it in court because I believe it. I didn't do drugs because I had PTSD. I did drugs because I enjoy being high. And so to try to say it was because of PTSD removes any sort of personal accountability. However, I wasn't going to take this opportunity and, and tell it by, um, So I accepted it, but here was a problem. I had to find somebody that would allow me to live in their home until I went to treatment or until I went to this PTSD treatment in Cincinnati. My mom wouldn't, um, my siblings wouldn't, nobody would. Um, and I didn't want to ask her, but the night before Dara and I had had a conversation and, uh, and I made a promise to her. Uh, I had what I call an honest encounter with reality. Um, I looked in my stainless steel mirror when I went to brush my teeth, and I really looked at myself. And uh, if you guys remember in the beginning of the podcast, I said when I went to jail that I was scared that I wouldn't be capable of surviving in that, in that world. But now I had, and I wasn't happy with the direction that it was taking me. I didn't want to do that anymore. I didn't know how to do anything else. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I Didn't want to do it anymore. So when I talked to Dara next, I told her that when I get out, if I get out, that I will never put meth or my old lifestyle above you, ever. Um, And she said, yeah, okay. Did you believe me when I said it?
2: I really wanted to. I really wanted to. um,
0: Had he said anything like that before?
2: No, and um, I had had relationships where substances were often and almost always chosen over me for the last, uh, for all of my life, actually. Um, so I really, really wanted to believe him. And I tried to have as much belief in him as I could about that.
1: And when I said the statement, I didn't believe if (laughs) I wasn't sure if I could uphold it. Yeah. Um, But what was it? Why were you saying this now at this point? because she'd stuck her neck out for me too far, too, too many times. Like it didn't make sense to me. It, it still didn't. And then the, the next part didn't make sense either. But if a woman was willing to go through these trials and tribulations with me, then she deserved me to try to be the best I could for her. Okay. And so I get the opportunity. It comes up in conversation. Um, that I need somewhere to go to get out of jail. And she says, "We well, can come here. I was like that. No, uh, that's not OK. Nobody knew that we were hanging out before that. Like, I don't want people to judge you because you're around me or anything like that. And um, she didn't care. And so she spoke to my attorney and got me released to, to her care. And this is uh, the two most important things that happened after that. Um, one, my loyalty had me confused. I was loyal to her. Yeah, I was loyal to people that I didn't need to be um, I was loyal to uh, acquaintances from the street. And it put me into a situation where I should have been at home and I wasn't. Um, and I get a text from Dara at like two or three in the morning. Uh, and she said, hey, um, I don't know where you are, but I'll come get you if you need a ride. Um, and I want you to know that I have, I have dinner here ready for you when you get home. And so I looked at my phone and I looked around the, the house I was in. And you got people doing meth in the corner, flailing around and I, like other stuff. And I looked at my phone and I looked around and I thought, what am I doing? And I went home. Uh, and then probably the the other, the craziest thing is, uh, when my ex-girlfriend got out of jail, uh, it messed my head up. I thought I was completely done with her. Uh, she got out of jail and, um, I wasn't sure where I wanted to go. If I wanted to go back to her, if I wanted to stay with Dara and I told Dara that and was extremely open with her about it. And she gave me the space to figure out what I want. And I want to highlight this, uh, This is the whole reason I wanted to bring this up. The woman sitting next to me, Dara, uh, without her love, her uh, authentic belief and trust that I could be anything else, that she saw something else in me, I wouldn't have changed. She loved me and she saw something greater in me, uh, which in turn reignited a flame that I had let die out long ago. And it made me want to be better. And here's the weird part, not for me. I said this to her when I had proposed to her. She makes me want to be better every single day, but not because I want to be better, but because the caliber of woman that she is deserves me to be better. She deserves me to constantly grow. Okay. And I say that because I guarantee you, anybody listening to this, if you have a girlfriend, a wife, a fiance, they probably deserve that as well. Please take the time to make yourself be the best you can, uh, and encourage your your spouse to be uh, as well. Because without Dara, after I got out of jail, I decided that I needed to re- replace this feeling that I was finding from drugs. So I pursued it, uh, and and I found it in a weird spot: running, or my version of it. Uh, I've competed in eleven half marathons and uh, and two full marathons in a wheelchair, um, and I'm currently training for an Ironman. Okay. And I want to remind all of you that I'm a triple amputee. All right. So these things shouldn't be quote unquote, in in my realm of capability, um, but they are because I believe they are, but that belief started in, in somebody else that believed I was capable. I overcome my drug addiction because she believed I could, and I believe I can overcome anything else now because of that. Um, and, and since then that belief in each other has helped us grow. Like, uh, I worked for Mission 60 like we said in the beginning uh as a leadership consultant. Um my growth is what made Jason want to have me come back. Um I'm going to school to be an auctioneer to try to help entrepreneurs with Warrior Rising. Um once again something I didn't think that I should do. Uh we went to a fundraiser and the auctioneer I felt left some money out on the floor that the uh, Warrior Rising could have taken home. And so Dara told me to go do it. And I was like what? Why would I be an auctioneer? That's no it's nonsense. And uh, I looked into it more and guess what? She was right. I should be an auctioneer. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm traveling to auctioneer college this afternoon, but all because she believed that I could do it all because she loved me and it wasn't impinged on anything. She loved me and gave me space to grow like a plant. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, man. And it's beautiful. And that's like in right for those listening, like, that's why we landed here with both you guys, because when you and I first had our intro call, you're like, my story is nothing without Dar- Dara. And, uh, and it, it's it been beautiful, like, like, talking to you guys since the first time, like, I can see how much you love her and she loves you. And it's, and I was like, that's why I was like, yeah, man, definitely, because that's the that's the beauty of it. And it's like, you know, it is special that, um, you know, define these life partners in it, like not just tag alongs, but like people that side with your potential, right? Like that keep you accountable to your potential, right? Because that's what we want. We want people in our lives that are pushing us because we need it. Like, you know, relying on self-discipline alone is a tall order sometimes, you know, but to have someone in your corner that you can, you know, at these, uh, say peaks and valleys. And when you're falling into that valley that someone can just kind of like help, help right and step in and go, Hey, you know, I got you. And so that you can then pivot and, you know, so I, 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 you know, you guys' story is awesome. Like Dara, what, how have you changed? How is, you know, Tommy's talked about how much he's changed because of you. How have you changed uh, since your time with, uh, with Tommy? I
2: have changed so much since my time with Tommy. Um, I think, well, and I don't know if change is the right word because I feel like I've come back to myself. Hmm. I feel like I spent a lot of years um, just trying to survive with, you know, provide for my kids and survive and that he's helped me re-realize who I am and what I'm passionate about. And a lot of his traits that I really love are starting to rub off, rub off on me. For example, you could probably tell that uh, he's a visitor. And so and I am naturally pretty shy. And we have had the most deep, meaningful conversations with strangers in the weirdest of places, all because of him. And it's it's just he's really made me more adventurous and just grateful for every day. And it's hard not to be inspired just living with him, too. I mean, he can do anything. He can do anything. <laughs> <laughs> and he's reminded me, too. Um, just the absolute honesty is really the key for connection, you know, and it, because he, he was originally the first one that took the leap and was like, you know what, I'm just going to throw it all out there. And. um, Which
1: was terrifying. (laughs) It was terrifying.
2: (laughs) Well, but then that's allowed me to throw it all out there too. And I feel like I really, you know, not only do I just, I have my person, someone that believes in me as much as I believe in him, but I just have, I don't know where I'm going with this. I don't know. I don't know how to articulate really how I, how much being honest has been able to create this connection for us. And it's just, it's changed so many people's lives around us. Just like him sharing about His drug addiction, you know, he's done at different, um, like for example, we went to the Other Side Academy in Salt Lake City, which is um, an alternative recovery center. Um, It's very interesting if you, you guys should go look it up. But, you know, his honesty with everyone there, it was so wonderful just to hear the response that he got back and how that helps change other people's lives and perspectives. And so just going through life, being willing to talk about things that other th- other people might think are uncomfortable has been life-changing for me in the best way possible um, because it just it inspires positive growth i think
0: yeah it, one of one of my tenants for example and i'll help maybe help articulate this is like one of the, one of my principles is establishing clarity and when i talk about it i go one of the aspects of clarity is truth right you can't work with misinformation or half truths right like we can only work like establish true clarity you know talk about like growth well we we can't grow to where our potential is if we don't know aren't honest with ourselves even of where we are right now right you remember back in the day like you go to the mall and it's like you are here and you're trying to find like the toy store or whatever right like you you're not going to find the toy store if you don't know where you are so and i think like that and and i, I that i think Again, maybe just to help you out with that, like, I think that's where uh, my wife and I, Jody are like, we're completely on like, because there's a the trust factor, right? Like if, if I tell people all the time, like, I can't fool with somebody that I got to question the words coming out of their mouth, period. I don't want to, I don't want, I don't even want to waste a breath in that conversation if I have to think twice. About the words coming out in your mouth, they're being true or not, right? You understand? So, like, certainly in a relationship, like there, there's no like you can only have that complete trust and honesty, so that you can have that baseline and continue to grow because it's so it's so important, right? I mean, just trust is so so important. Um, I don't know if that helps you at all, but that that's what that's what I've come to learn for sure.
1: No, I I agree. I I view it as this way: it's hard to diagnose a problem if it can't tell you what's wrong. Like if you go try to find out, like, oh, my car is making a noise. Like your car doesn't like try to move the noise, or be like, oh, it's just my door squeaking. Like no, it's the serpentine belt. And so you know what I'm saying. Like, but and so if you try to enter into the same thing with anybody else, and you're like, hey, what what's wrong? And they're like, oh, my door squeaking. And you're like, wait a second, that's not where the sound's coming from. Like, it, and so if you view it as like that, if you're trying to to come to the root of a problem with uh in the most logical way like having any barriers in the way of communication, you can't diagnose it correctly. Like it, I, I can only imagine how much harder doing uh, combat, life-saving stuff and, and combat would have been if I come running up to the guy and I'm like, hey, what, where are you hurt at? He's like, I'm fine. You should already know what's wrong. Like, right. no. Like, no like, and so, if but opening that immediate communication, like it made it so much easier. But I trust in the fact that I can tell her whatever and it's not going to make her change how she loves me like that is that is super like it it is because i don't think i've had that with other relationships with people where i was afraid to be 100 percent authentic to truly talk about things that bothered me because it might change how they view their view of me but with her i've told her things that nobody else knows about me beliefs or things that i've had because i don't think that she's gonna like I, I could say whatever I want, um, but this is a prime example. The other day I got mad at her because she kept telling me sorry. Okay. Um, and she was unnecessarily apologizing for things that didn't need to be apologized for. And then she's like, babe, what's wrong? You seem tense today. And I was like, no, you're, you're annoying me. You keep saying sorry every time. Um, which I probably could have said it better uh, now that I'm thinking back on it. But, <laughs> She understood that I wasn't trying to say it to be mean or spiteful or anything like that. She asked me a question. I gave her an answer. We discussed it. We moved forward. I don't think I've ever been able to have that with anybody else where I'm like, no, this action is bothering me. And they're like, well, I'm doing that. Like, she's like, oh, OK. Like, it was just it was. But the communication was there because I was blunt. Like, if maybe something wrong, nothing like now the rest of the day, I'm mad. And she's still saying sorry about things that she shouldn't be apologizing about. We didn't get any
0: Yeah yeah no i mean it's good to keep that just line of communication open it because it it, i guess back to maybe what dar Dar was trying to say it also creates that safe space where you can feel like you can be authentic and be yourself because you're in an environment that that's genuine like you're in an authentic environment right so you can you know trust that you can be yourself without that judgment or whatever you know so well man i've I've had you guys a long time so what's it what's Tommy, what are you telling people? Someone says, hey, what do I got to do, you know, to be successful? You know, what's what's the what's the lesson you're you're preaching that, that you've learned?
1: To be successful, you have to figure out where you are and where you want to go. You also have to understand that there is no easy route to that and that if you deliberately choose things that are hard first, it will make your life innately easier. If you choose easy things first, it will make your life innately harder. Run headfirst uphills in search of growth.
0: Love it, man. Dara, how about you?
2: I was going to say, those are my sentiments exactly. <laughs> we talk about this a lot. We talk about it a lot. So please take that as a joint answer.
0: <laughs> yeah, man. No, I love it. So, uh, how can people find you guys online? Any preferred mediums or socials that people, if they want to get into contact with you guys or.
2: Um, they can go, we have a Facebook page called adventures with King Kong. And that's more of just like Tommy likes to record his thoughts on there. We do some fun pictures of just what our life is. And then we're both, both on LinkedIn. Tommy's is Thomas Parker and mine is Dara Rada.
0: Cool. And that was Facebook. It's adventures with King Kong.
2: Correct.
1: Yes. Is it, is a group thing. King Kong is a nickname that I picked up, um, when I was a drug addict, uh, I spent a long time without a wheelchair. And so when I crawled around on the ground, I looked like a gorilla. Um, And so that's where that came from.
0: Right on, man. Well, look, I I appreciate all the time and, uh, you know, you guys coming on and sharing your story, man, it's, it's like I say, it's beautiful. And I love how you guys have grown together and kind of shown the power of, of, love for one another and partner with each other's potential and uh and i got a ton of respect for you guys and i'm look forward to keeping in touch and learning more about what you guys are doing with warrior rising and the like so uh, i appreciate you guys for coming on thank,
2: thank you, you
1: Dale. <laughs> yeah thank you for having us and giving us the opportunity to tell our story apparently we wanted to talk at the same time
0: <laughs> <laughs> that, okay good to go well i appreciate you guys i'll talk to you real soon